The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, episode 19. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into our beloved operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs and lectures that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. This Friday, February 19th, is the Met's season premiere of Anthony Minghella's celebrated production of Madama Butterfly. In anticipation of this premiere, we are once again reaching into the Talking About Opera archives to present an enthralling lecture given by the acclaimed playwright, director, and journalist Albert Inarato. In this lecture, which was recorded in 1997, Mr. Inarato explores the inner workings of Butterfly's complicated characters and navigates through various highlights in the plot and the score. I hope you enjoy this presentation of one of opera's most beloved and most often performed works. You might think that's the Star-Spangled Banner, the American National Anthem by Francis Scott Key, but you'd be wrong. It's from Giacomo Puccini's opera, Madama Butterfly. It's one of many found melodies or tags the composer used, most of them from Japanese sources. This collage technique is actually very contemporary, more accepted now than it was in Puccini's time. And an underlying theme of Butterfly, the collision of cultures, remains very current as our world shrinks more and more. Though it is a work of vast musical sophistication and prescience, Madama Butterfly has all the earmarks of what intellectual music critics hate in Puccini. It is full of instantly memorable melodies. It continually goes unabashedly and unashamedly for the jugular. And worst of all, it is overwhelmingly effective. There are few other stage works of any description as surefire. In 1899, Puccini's Tosca had been launched on the world, to bomb threats more than acclaim. But it was clear in a very short time that he had created another hit. The composer was 41 and world famous. Manon Lescaut had launched him in 1893. La Boheme, indifferently received in 1896, had made him very wealthy. He had developed a much-reported-on and, at the time, unusual love of expensive, fast automobiles. He started the process of finding a subject by considering Dostoevsky's From the House of the Dead, later set by Leos Janacek. He looked at plays by Emile Zola. Ruggiero Leoncavallo was trying to get his hands on one. A sometime Puccini pal and the composer of Pagliacci, Leoncavallo had helped with the libretto of Manon Lescaut. Later, he was the first to have the idea of setting something called um, La Boheme. Puccini stole the idea. Leoncavallo went ahead and composed a very nice opera. Puccini had the smash. Their friendship didn't last. Puccini looked at Maeterlinck's sensational play, Peleas et Melisande. He'd heard a rumor a certain Frenchman named Debussy was trying to get the rights. 
Such competition always inflamed Puccini's enthusiasm for a project. Then there was the possibility of an opera on Marie Antoinette, a perfect Puccini heroine, but that never came to pass. He was very enthusiastic about Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, just think, a Puccini Les Mis, but that only lasted for a week or so. The composer of women just couldn't bear to think of writing about a lifelong feud between two men. In the summer of 1900, in London, Puccini saw a hit one-act play called Madame Butterfly. This was by the American director, producer, writer, con artist, all-around finagler, David Belasco. Belasco was born in San Francisco, literally ran away to join the circus, and became one of the great theater celebrities of his day. Though an unregenerate philanderer, he loved to dress up in various religious outfits, the denomination depending on his mood. Belasco was the Steven Spielberg of his time. He used a remarkable facility with stage effects to dress up his plays, many of them plagiarized. Madame Butterfly was based on a short story by a Philadelphia lawyer named John Luther Long. Long had gotten the idea from his sister, she had married a missionary and lived in Japan. Her husband converted a geisha to Christianity. Later, when her American husband deserted her, the geisha decided to commit suicide. She was dissuaded by the missionary at the last minute. In Long's story, the young girl, called Chocho-san, or Miss Butterfly, does indeed kill herself by inserting the knife between the nerves in the back of her neck uh, evidently painless and not very bloody. Naturally, Velasco changed this to the gruesome self-disembowelment or throat slashing we usually see. Velasco created a sensation by simulating the heroine's 12-hour wait for her returning husband in stage time. He invented a remarkable series of lighting, scrim, and sound effects, the sort of thing that would later come to be called montage in movies. Puccini didn't understand a word of Madame Butterfly and didn't care. He went running backstage, found Belasco, and begged for the rights. I agreed at once, Belasco wrote. Though it is not possible to discuss business arrangements with an impulsive Italian who has tears in his eyes and both arms around your neck. Be that as it may, it took a year for Puccini's publisher, Ricordi, to secure the rights. Later, Puccini would set another Belasco play, La Fanciulla dell'Ouest, the girl of the Golden West. While Puccini was waiting to begin, Giuseppe Verdi died at the age of 88. Puccini and his colleagues Mascagni and Leoncavallo were at the funeral services. Puccini was the official delegate of his hometown, Lucca. Curiously, Madama Butterfly would be the end of the great Italian hegemony in opera. Mascagni and Leoncavallo had already written the works that would keep their names alive, though both were men in their primes who composed much more. Butterfly was the last time Puccini would work with his librettists, Giuseppe Giacosa and Luigi Illica. They had helped him shape La Boheme in Tosca. Giacosa died in 1906. Puccini never approached Illica again. As usual, there would be tussles with these two as they worked. Giacosa, in particular, would have angry fits. But none of Puccini's later librettists worked as well with him, and none of his subsequent operas are a sure fire. Butterfly would be the last Puccini opera and the last Italian opera to become a bread-and-butter perennial in all the opera companies in the world. Critical estimation of Puccini's later works would rise and fall, and records would make them more familiar. But the Tritico, La Fanciulla del West, 
and La Rondine would never be as widely accepted as the early works. Puccini would not live to complete Turandot, and its great success would come only in the 50s. The biggest problem in turning Madame Butterfly into an opera was filling out the one-act original. Ilica had already written the text for a successful Asian opera, Mascagni's Iris, and there are some similarities in the stories. Iris is a young girl ill-used by a sexual opportunist and cursed by her father, a priest. Iris ends with the heroine's mystical transfiguration. The Belasco play had a big advantage, Butterfly's death scene. That is what had sent Puccini sobbing backstage in search of Belasco. The question was the best way to lead up to that devastating final image. Belasco's play is longer on atmosphere than plot, and there are few details. Almost from the first, there were arguments between Puccini, his writers, and his publisher about whether there should be two or three acts. An Italian opera with only two acts was virtually inconceivable at the time. So to start with, three acts were sketched. Ilica, Puccini, and Giacosa toyed with having an act set in America. They also thought there should be a scene at the American consulate in Nagasaki, where the opera is set. Looking for additional material, the librettists rated a fiction by the French writer, Pierre Lotti. This was Madame Chrysanthème, one of the most sensational novels of the time. It was made into an opera by the French composer Messagie in 1893. Many details in the first version of Madame Butterfly are cribbed from the novel. The venal marriage broker, called Goro in Puccini, Kangaroo, believe it or not, in Lotti, the drunken uncle, Butterfly's nosy, corrupt, and nasty relatives, the collusion of an embassy official in a sham marriage, are all from Lotti. But details are one problem, character is another. The American sailor, Pinkerton, who abandons Butterfly, is really a bit part in Belasco's play. Finding a personality for Pinkerton puzzled the Italians. They didn't know any Americans or many sailors. Iris, Ilica's earlier libretto, had been rather a fancy literary work. Puccini demanded realism. So the biggest theft from Madame Chrysanthème was of its author. The only person Ilica and Giacosa could think of as a model for Pinkerton was Pierre Lotti himself. They knew all the gossip about him. Lotti was a cynical and racist adventurer, very fond of exotic locales, girls, and opium. Pinkerton's devil-may-care attitude toward everything and his sexually predatory nature are Lotti to the life. However, it was pointed out to Puccini he was asking for trouble with tenors. Who, it was asked, would want to sing such a wretched character? Puccini didn't care, and in the first version didn't even give the tenor an aria. Work on the opera proceeded speedily, though arguments about a two-versus-a-three-act structure continued. Puccini decided on the two-act version. By the end of 1902, Puccini had orchestrated Act One and was obsessed with finishing the work in 1903. One day, he drove with his long-time, long-suffering companion, Elvira, and their son to see a doctor. It was February. Afterwards, they stopped to dine with a friend. The night was foggy. The friend implored the composer to stay. But night was when he worked. The family left. Their car was driven by a chauffeur. On the way back, the car skidded out of control on a curve and fell off a steep embankment. Chauffeur, wife, and son were only slightly injured. But the composer could not be found in the pitch dark. 
Finally, the frantic Elvira heard the composer moaning. He had been crushed under the car and was already almost suffocated by fumes from the car exhaust. Luckily, a doctor living nearby had been awakened by the crash and came running to investigate. Puccini's leg was fractured. It was so badly set it had to be broken again and reset. This left him with a permanent limp. One of the wounds he received refused to heal. He was diagnosed with diabetes. The story was carried in the world's papers. His recuperation took months. I am all plaster cast, he wrote dejectedly, and they have put me on a diet of five meals a day with strychnine and Carlsbad water. It was months before Puccini could work. In great pain, he would haul himself into a wheelchair and wheel himself from his bed to the piano and back. He wrote to Ilika, I can't tell you how I feel. Farewell to everything. Farewell to Butterfly. Farewell to my life. There was also a terrible falling out with his publisher Ricordi at this time. A woman Puccini was involved with tried to blackmail him through the Ricordi firm. To say the least, Puccini's life had been extremely bohemian. Though their son was 18, he and Elvira married only in 1904, and they did so less out of love than to placate the composer's friends and business associates who were concerned about the tabloid reporters of that time. Puccini was now an international celebrity, and his lifestyle was of interest in attracting salacious gossip. The marriage was terribly unhappy. In the midst of all this, however, Puccini completed Madame Butterfly on the 27th of December, 1903, at 11.10 p.m. It was to remain Puccini's favorite of his operas. Butterfly is the most heartfelt and most expressive opera I have conceived, he wrote. It had the worst world premiere of any opera he had written. In fact, the first night was one of the great scandals in opera history. Curiously, the near riot that occurred was similar to what would happen ten years later at the premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring in Paris. Ricordi wrote how the opera was greeted by roars, laughter, howls, bellowing, and guffaws. The noise began immediately, and almost none of the music was heard. Puccini described the event as a lynching. Those cannibals didn't listen to one single note. What a terrible orgy of madmen drunk with hate. Later, he wrote, the first night was a Dantean inferno prepared in advance. Puccini was the victim of intrigue and also of circumstances. Rosina Storchio, the first butterfly, was widely known to be pregnant by the conductor Arturo Toscanini, who was married to somebody else. In the second act, her kimono rode up, making her condition more obvious. When she said her child by Pinkerton was called Dolore, trouble, the battle was truly lost. One of the headlines the next day sums it all up. Butterfly, diabetic opera, result of an accident. The shattered Puccini covered La Scala's costs and withdrew his opera. Puccini's rivals and enemies had purchased the scandal. But it's true that the two-act version puzzled and bored the audience. By the commercial standards of the time, one act lasting over an hour, followed by one lasting 90 minutes, was just too much. There was also too much incident in Act One, so the movement of the plot was confusing. And so was the tone of the piece. To an Italian public dressing the tenor and baritone in contemporary clothes, then having the chorus in many small parts dressed as Japanese seemed hilarious and ridiculous. The tragic circumstances of the second act didn't follow.
Three months later, Puccini and his associates gave the opera again, this time in the small theater in Brescia, near Milan. There had been many cuts. The tenor had been given an aria. The curtain was dropped between the two scenes of Act Two, so at least the audience could talk over the long orchestral interlude. The opera was a triumph. Much of musical Milan traveled to see it, and the composer was completely vindicated. He continued to tinker, making further changes for the London performances in 1905, where Enrico Caruso sang his first Pinkerton, and still more changes for Paris in 1906. This is the version most widely performed today, in three acts, the first act very tight and focused. There are those who think the composer's original inspiration was the best. Puccini's musical method for creating a world for Madame Butterfly is remarkable. He began by researching Japanese music. He uses seven native tunes. One is the Japanese national anthem. We hear it in Act One when the imperial commissioner arrives for the marriage ceremony of Butterfly and Pinkerton. <laughs> Puccini uses a Japanese folk song when the marriage broker Goro announces Butterfly's imminent arrival. Then there is the haunting strain identified as Japanese classical music in Puccini's sources. This is under the young butterfly's story about how her once distinguished family has fallen on hard times. There is a tune known as the Cherry Blossom Song. This we hear when Butterfly shows off her few possessions to the mystified and somewhat condescending Pinkerton. When Butterfly's relatives offer their congratulations after the wedding, the melody is the Japanese song, the Nihon Bashi. Act two starts with a prayer intoned by Butterfly's maid, Suzuki, who is ringing a bell. The two are destitute, and Pinkerton is long gone. This is another folk song. In Act Two, a fatuous Japanese prince named Yamadori comes wooing Butterfly. Naturally, to characterize him, Puccini used a popular Japanese song called My Prince. <laughs>
Puccini also researched the sound of Asian instruments, using the orchestra to give his own melodies a strongly oriental cast. Woodwind, harp, and bells add considerably to the gorgeousness of Butterfly's entrance aria. Instrumental color also adds to the harshness of the dramatic moments in the opera, most memorably at the very end. Butterfly has killed herself. Pinkerton finds her body. As he retrieves their child, the orchestra thunders out a theme Puccini invented for Butterfly's description of her geisha dancing. Here, brass and cymbals and drums create a vivid sense of inevitable horror. That final chord, by the way, is typical of Puccini's harmonic practice in this opera. A wrong note, a G, is added to the B minor chord. The dissonance is shattering and would have been more so in Puccini's time. Not only does it suggest that Butterfly's death will never be atoned for, but because there is no musical resolution that dramatizes the likely fate of her little boy in xenophobic turn-of-the-century America. It's a simple gesture, but overwhelming in context. Puccini was far and away the most sophisticated and complex of the Italian composers of his generation. Butterfly is full of haunting and subtle thematic transformations working hand in glove with the drama. A tiny example is the way one theme is changed. We hear it in its clearest form when Butterfly remembers Pinkerton's love. The melody dissolves in our ears as Butterfly tries to hold on to her faith in that love, reassuring the weeping Suzuki. Later, when Butterfly suddenly reveals Pinkerton's son, the result of their love, to the American consul, a version of that theme thunders out. The sharp-eared will hear that, in fact, this theme is very cleverly derived from the American national anthem. To make that obvious, Puccini builds to a clear statement of the Star-Spangled Banner within a few seconds of that music. Here is the whole sequence.
Puccini routinely transcends the story and the play the opera was based on. The ability of music to express many things at once is harnessed to a powerful and profound theatrical imagination. Act One is divided into two parts. The first is expository, dramatically but also musically. The claim by some that Butterfly is Puccini's symphony is not as silly as it may sound. As in a symphony, motives are stated or suggested in the first half hour of the piece, which are then expanded and colored throughout the rest of the opera. The opera begins with one of Puccini's invented Asian themes, which is given a fugal treatment, suggesting oriental busyness and formality. When symbols are added, there is an element of threat. We are on a hill overlooking the port of Nagasaki. Above a little house, there is an expanse of sky, and below is the sea. The house is quite remote, deliberately chosen by Pinkerton, one suspects, because it is so far from prying eyes, both of any Japanese and also the naval authorities. But beautiful and private as the location is, it will leave Butterfly isolated. Lieutenant Benjamin Franklin Pinkerton, U.S. Navy, from the ship the Abraham Lincoln, is with the marriage broker, Goro. Goro has taken care of everything. He has procured the bride, a geisha named Chocho-san, or Butterfly. He has gotten the house and arranged a wedding ceremony. Pinkerton is amazed at the intricacy of the house with its many sliding panels and screens. He is especially concerned with the bedroom. Goro claps his hands, and three servants appear. Goro recites their names. Miss Nuovo La Leggera, Miss Light Cloud, the chambermaid. Raggio di Sol Nascente, Ray of the Rising Sun, uh, the male servant. And Essa La Romi, he of good smells, the cook. Not governed by political correctness, Pinkerton laughs at the names. The chambermaid, we'll get to know her as Suzuki, speaks up, trying to ingratiate herself. Well, when they chatter like that, they're the same all over the world, smirks Pinkerton as Goro sends the servants packing. Goro fills him in on the schedule. Butterfly's relatives will come, mostly for the drinks. They're a funny bunch, Goro says, except for the nasty old priest, her uncle, 
Lozio Bons, as he's called in Italian. They needn't expect him. But mother, various contemporaries, and some ancestors can be expected. As for descendants, that will be up to Mr. Pinkerton and the beautiful butterfly. As Pinkerton laughs, we hear someone climbing the hill. This is the American consul, Sharpless. It's a steep climb, and the consul is in need of refreshment. Goro gets some. Pinkerton explains that while he has a lease on the house for 999 years, there is a monthly outclause. Pinkerton expounds his philosophy. Wherever the adventuring Yankee goes in the world, he mixes pleasure and profit. Goro has come back with refreshments, milk punch or whiskey. When Goro tries to get Sharpless interested in a young girl for himself, Pinkerton sends him to get the ceremony started. Sharpless notices Pinkerton is on edge. Has he really fallen in love with a Japanese girl? Not love, perhaps, but the young lieutenant is sexually obsessed with her fluttering grace. She's just like a butterfly, fragile yet infinitely alluring. The consul warns him that the girl may not take so hedonistic a view of their marriage. She'd come to the consulate the other day. He hadn't seen her, but had heard her speaking. The sound of her voice and her obvious sincerity had moved him. Pinkerton laughs. Sharpless is an old fuddy-duddy and needs more whiskey. Sharpless offers a toast to Pinkerton's family back home, and Pinkerton drinks to the day he will have a true American wedding to a true American wife, una sposa americana. Goro announces that Butterfly and her bridesmaids are climbing the hill. Butterfly urges her friends on, for today she sings she is the happiest girl in all of Japan. 
It's one of the most magical entrances in opera. The girls' voices come closer and closer, soaring through a marvelous tune. There is some awkwardness as bride, groom, and consul talk. Butterfly reveals that her family was once rich and powerful, but as she says, storms can uproot the strongest oaks. So she's become a geisha to support herself. Sharpless asks about her mother. She is present and says nothing. But when he asks about her father, Butterfly has only one hasty word, morto, dead. Realizing he's blundered, Sharpless asks her age. I'm exactly 15, she says. Sharpless rebukes Pinkerton. That's the age of toys. End of wedding cake, the sailor replies. The imperial commissioner arrives with a registrar and the rest of Butterfly's family. Make it snappy, Pinkerton tells Goro, leaning back to watch the nosy relatives who can hardly keep their eyes off him. Oh, he's not that good-looking, one cousin allows. Says you, snaps Butterfly. Where's the wine? asks an uncle. Sharpless knows this is a funny scene, and he can see Pinkerton is proud to have so beautiful a bride. But be careful, the consul warns the lieutenant. She believes it. Pinkerton shows off the pretty house to Butterfly, and she shows him her few possessions. There's one thing she seems to be hiding. What's that, he asks. It's sacred, she says. There are too many people watching. Perdonate, forgive me. Goro explains to Pinkerton, it's a present from the Mikado to her father, with the invitation, Goro Mock stabs himself. Did her father accept the invitation? Aobedito, Goro replies. He did indeed. Butterfly takes some small dolls from her sleeves. What are those puppets, Pinkerton wants to know. The souls of my ancestors, she says. How you doing, Pinkerton asks them. Then she tells him she has secretly converted to Christianity. None of her relatives know. She dreams of kneeling with him in the same little church, praying to the same God. For him, she would gladly forget her own people, amore mio, my love. 
That is the beginning of the marriage ceremony. In Butterfly's Little Aria, we heard Puccini's technique in this opera. A very Italian-sounding melody is given an Asian cast in the orchestra and leads effortlessly to that fierce Japanese motive which forecasts Butterfly's tragic fate. It's also typical of this opera that there are brief soaring melodies which arise from nowhere, as this one, which emerges right after Butterfly and Pinkerton are married. Madama Butterfly, giggle her girlfriends. Madama B.F. Pinkerton, Chocho-san corrects them. Westerners leave. Sharpless has one final warning for Pinkerton to be careful with Butterfly. Wondering how best to get rid of the relatives quickly, Pinkerton lifts a glass to them when... That is Lozio Bonds, Chocho-san's uncle a Buddhist priest who has found out she's converted to Christianity. He curses her. The horrified relatives join in. Pinkerton orders them all to get out. Come on, cries the priest to them. She has thrown us away. We disown you. Pinkerton forces everybody out. Their cries of hatred and their curses of butterfly can be heard as they scatter down the hillside. She is sobbing. Pinkerton talks to her as one does to a baby. Not all the bonzes in Japan are worth one of your tears. She smiles. I'm cast out and alone. And happy. Pinkerton calls to the servants to close up the house. They do. Suzuki helps Butterfly take off her wedding robes and discreetly bids goodnight. This is the famous love duet. The first part is dominated by Pinkerton. 
It's one of Puccini's successes in the opera, as opposed to the story or play, that it's virtually impossible to hate Pinkerton. Puccini himself knew firsthand what it was like to fall irresponsibly in love with no understanding of the consequences. He did it throughout his life, and they were often ugly consequences. But by making Pinkerton charming, even tender with his little bride, Puccini also enhances Butterfly. For there to be a tragedy, her belief that Pinkerton truly loves her and will come back has to seem plausible. She can't be either a little fool, or, as was the case in Loti's novel, a gold digger. At the end of Act One, Pinkerton is truly and sincerely entranced with this little girl. He can hardly believe his luck, for this is a magical creature, all his. He is feverish with desire, yet at the same time, full of tenderness. Butterfly has one final thought about her plight. Butterfly, rinagata, rinagata, e felice. Butterfly, cast out and happy. And he enfolds her in his arms. Butterfly says she feels like the moon goddess who comes down over the bridge of heaven to carry men away. But you haven't told me you love me, cries Pinkerton. Does the goddess of the moon love? She does, answers Butterfly, but fears to say it, fears saying it will kill her. That's silly, laughs Pinkerton. Love gives life. In some of her most beautiful music, with a wonderful violin solo leading in, Butterfly asks, Vogliatemi bene, un bene picciolino, un bene dal bambino. I want you to love me, but with a little love, the way you love a baby.
Pinkerton can barely restrain himself. She's just like a beautiful butterfly whose flickering is sexually intoxicating. But they say, she cries, in the West, when a butterfly is caught, it is stuck through with a pin and fixed to a board. That's true, he says, and you know why? Because then you can't get away. I've caught you. Are you mine? For life, she cries. They reach their musical climax. Butterfly has written, I see. The tenor often joins her. Then they go to the bedroom as the stars shine in the beautiful sky. The gorgeous music that follows them inside comes to rest on a chord which doesn't resolve. In a quiet way, Puccini, the dramatist, is telling us this is not all that it seems. This moment of her greatest happiness as the seed of Butterfly's destruction. Three years have passed when Act Two starts. Butterfly and Suzuki are still in the house. The other servants have run off. Pinkerton is gone, and the money he left is almost gone. Suzuki, terrified of the future, prays. Butterfly complains about the lazy gods of Japan. Surely the American god will help them. Suzuki doesn't believe Pinkerton will ever come back. Foreign husbands never do. Well, why has he instructed the consul to keep paying the rent, Butterfly wants to know. Pinkerton told her he would come back with the roses when the robin, il petiroso, builds his nest. She remembers his exact words and sings them to one of those short, wonderful melodies. Suzuki, who has come to love Chocho-san, weeps in despair. But Butterfly affirms her faith. One fine day we'll see the wisp of smoke from a ship on the sea. And she goes on to describe what she has dreamed in detail, Pinkerton's return. The aria Umbeldi is so famous we may miss Puccini's skill and subtlety. 
although this is Italian music from the turn of the century, the composer never loses sight of the Asian girl who is singing it. In the midst of the aria is a pentatonic scale, white key music, typical of Japanese harmony. Butterfly sings this to the words, Sabia la collina, you'll be climbing the hill. She's imagining Pinkerton, of course, climbing up to see her. At the end of the opera, those very notes come back. There, Butterfly sings to Sharpless and Pinkerton's American wife. I'll be waiting for him in half hour. In a terrible sense, her dream has come true. Pinkerton will indeed climb the hill again to take her child. For the moment, though, Butterfly is firm in her faith. Goro enters, leading Sharpless. Butterfly is thrilled to see the consul. Welcome to an American home, she cries. Are your ancestors all right? I hope so, he answers. He's tense and wants to speak with her. But poor as she is, she offers cigars, then cigarettes. Sharpless has a letter from Pinkerton, he says. She's delighted, but first things first. When do robins build their nests, she asks. For that's when her husband said he'd return, and they've built them quite a bit, and he's not here. Goro sniggers. Butterfly shuts him up and repeats her question. I'm sure I don't know, comes the reply. I haven't studied ornithology. Butterfly doesn't know what he's talking about, but before he can open the letter, she tells him all about Goro, who has been trying to marry her off to a rich idiot. Prince Yamadori, Goro explains, and in fact the prince arrives at just that moment. Though he's a playboy who has discarded a lot of wives, he's pining away for Butterfly. She makes fun of him. As far as Butterfly is concerned, she is still a married lady. Goro tells her for the thousandth time that by law, desertion is tantamount to divorce. That's Japanese law, she says. I'm an American. In my country, judges protect women. And she orders Suzuki to bring tea. The men can only shake their heads at her naivete. They know Pinkerton's ship, the Abraham Lincoln, has already been sighted and is due in port almost immediately. Sharpless hardly needs to tell the man that he has a letter from Pinkerton saying he doesn't want to see Butterfly again. Yamadori takes his leave, and his music has a sudden tenderness, though he has behaved a little like a buffoon. Just as Puccini's skill makes Pinkerton seem likable, someone can hear more than a hint of decency, even perhaps true love, from the silly prince as he says addio, farewell.
Finally, Sharpless is alone with Butterfly. He starts to read Pinkerton's letter, which she kisses and holds to her heart before he can begin. As a memorable theme we'll hear later steals in, Sharpless gets to the place where Pinkerton wants to buy Butterfly off. After all, perhaps she no longer remembers him. Non mi ramenta più. The very idea shocks Butterfly, who calls Suzuki to bear witness to her daily longing. Naturally, Butterfly doesn't understand. All she grasps is that Pinkerton is returning. When? When she cries. Sharpless curses Pinkerton for not being man enough to do this himself. What would you do, Madame Butterfly, he asks, if he were never to return? There would be nothing for her, she says. Maybe she could dance again, but it would be better to die. Those two clarinets and the ostinato bass, the same notes hammered over and over, suggest the creeping sense of catastrophe for this girl, still only 18. She almost faints, pulls herself together. Then it hits her. He's forgotten me. Thank you. 
She produces her son, Pinkerton's son, as his blonde curls prove. She has the little boy shake Sharpless's hand. Then, as though talking to the child, she speculates on the life that evil letter promises for them. This man wants your mother to take you in her arms and go out begging in the streets, saying to all the passers-by, Listen, listen, we've been abandoned. Have pity. And if you give me a handout, I'll dance for you as the geishas do. No, she says. Better than such dishonor would be death. Morta. Moved, Sharpless asks her pardon and asks the little boy his name. She answers for him. Say, today my name is Dolore, sorrow, but if Daddy returns, it will be Joya, joy. Sharpless has left with a promise to tell Pinkerton about the child. But at that moment, Suzuki has dragged Goro in. She's caught him in the market, spreading filthy rumors. I've only been saying that in America, such a half-breed will be spat on by everyone. Butterfly screams in fury. She takes the sword her father used to kill himself and attacks Goro. Suzuki stops her. He runs away. Butterfly can only clasp her child in terror. The women hear the cannon from the port. Butterfly takes a little telescope and sees a ship coming into harbor. Her hands are shaking so much, Suzuki has to steady them. She stares and stares, crying out, Il nome, the name, the name, Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, Pinkerton's ship. Sleep. <laughs> 
Butterfly is beside herself. Despite everyone, even the consul, her gossiping, hate-filled relative, Suzuki, despite them all, Butterfly was right. Triumph il mio amor, she cries. My love has triumphed. E torna mamma. He's come back, and he loves me. Butterfly hurls herself around the little house. It must be prepared for his return. When will that be, she demands. An hour? Maybe two? Certainly no more. Despite her happiness, she's crying, and Suzuki tries to calm her. We must spread flowers everywhere, Butterfly insists, sending Suzuki out into the garden to get every blossom she can find. The two women virtually wreck the garden, searching for flowers. We must have spring everywhere, Butterfly cries. We will create the most beautiful April ever. have spread the flowers. Now Butterfly wants to look her best. She sends Suzuki for the child while she gets her few cosmetics. She looks in a mirror for the first time in three years. I've aged, she sees. I've looked into the distance too much. Teasingly, she dabs a little rouge on the child, then suddenly laughs about her uncle, the Bonds. They all had her dead and buried. Her eyes fall on something. It is the obi she wore at her wedding. She is flooded with all the tenderness and the magical love she felt for Pinkerton that first night. She and Suzuki set the screen up and poke three holes in it so they may hover behind and watch for Pinkerton. Like three little mice, Butterfly laughs. Night falls. The moon rises. Suzuki and the baby fall asleep, but Butterfly is bathed in moonlight. Perhaps she thinks of herself as that moon goddess who so loved Pinkerton. There is humming off stage as she waits, entirely still, glowing in the light of the stars. It is the melody to which Sharpless read Pinkerton's letter.
The second part of Act Two, or Act Three, as the opera is often performed, starts with a long interlude which announces the tragedy in store. <laughs> Sometimes the curtain is closed for this, but Puccini probably preferred we see the passage of night in the morning. In the interlude, Puccini has written the bird songs of dawn. Butterfly hasn't slept, but has stood expectantly the whole time. When Suzuki awakes, she sends her off to bed, promising to call her the minute Pinkerton arrives. Butterfly picks up her little son and carries him off stage, singing a lullaby. Povera Butterfly, sighs Suzuki, who doesn't believe Pinkerton will return. Of course, that is Sharpless in Pinkerton. Suzuki's joy turns to horror as she sees a young American woman in the garden. It is Pinkerton's real wife, Kate. Sharpless calms her. They need her help to try and make it easier for Chocho-san. <laughs> 
Surely Suzuki can see that Pinkerton is entitled to his own son, and it will be much better for the boy to be raised American. Pinkerton is stunned at the sight of the garden and the house, for the garden has been spoiled to decorate the house for him. He can't bear to stay and turns to run down the hill. Sharpless rebukes him, but all Pinkerton can do is sob his farewell to this beautiful place which his selfishness wrecked. Suzuki has been talking with Pinkerton's wife, Kate. She believes Kate will try to love the little boy. But it's important that Butterfly find out what must be done alone. Too late. Butterfly has heard noises and comes running out, convinced Pinkerton is there. Sharpless, Kate and Suzuki are unable to speak. She has to ask, then command Suzuki to tell her the truth. Pinkerton will never come back. In an instant, Butterfly understands Kate is Pinkerton's wife, and they want her son. Do it for the boy, Sharpless asks. What a bad mother, Butterfly says, to abandon her child. But so be it. I must obey him in all things. Kate asks her pardon, and Butterfly says, Sotto il gran ponte del cielo, under the great bridge of heaven, there is no one happier than you. May you be always so.
he may have the child if he comes back in half hour. Sharpless and Kate leave. Butterfly sends Suzuki away to keep the child company. Suzuki doesn't want to leave her. I command it, cries Butterfly. Alone, she takes the sword her father used to kill himself and reads the inscription on the blade. Con honor muor, he dies with honor who can no longer live with honor. She lifts the blade to her throat. Suzuki has pushed the child out to his mother. Butterfly hugs him. You, you little god who have come down to me from the highest paradise, look at me. Please look at my face. It is your mother's face. Look at me. Perhaps you won't forget. Now go and play. Joka, Joka. Butterfly gives the boy an American flag, gently blindfolds him, and places him away from the screen. She goes behind it and cuts her throat. The screen falls over. She has covered her wound with a cloth. Desperately, she crawls to reach her baby and dies. Pinkerton is heard calling her name. He runs on and grabs the child as the curtain falls.
Thank you so much for listening to episode 19 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you will take a moment to leave a comment or a review in iTunes, or consider donating to the continuation of the podcast at metguild.org podcast. Next week, we are very excited to be presenting a special podcast for our 20th episode, in which I and other colleagues here at the Met Guild will dive into the Met's 2016-2017 season announcement and discuss some of the things we are looking forward to, some of our favorites that might be coming back, and some of the highlights as well as potential sleeper hits. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening. (laughs) 